Welcome to the Life's Hard Succeed Anyway podcast, where you will hear transformational stories, positive encouragement, and practical strategies to help you grow your mindset, reach your potential, live your dreams, and experience a purpose-driven, impact-filled life. Here's your host, Alan Blaine. Well, this is Alan Blaine, and I am fired up to interview our special guest today, Mr. Trey Taylor. I want to start off by telling you just a little bit about Trey, and then we'll jump in to the interview here. Trey is the managing director of Threadneedle, the Taylor family office, chief executive officer of Taylor Insurance Services. He's the managing director of Trinity Blue Consulting and the founding partner of Ascend Partners. In 2013, Trey was named one of Georgia Trend Magazine's 40 Under 40. In 2020, Trey published his first book called A CEO Only Does three things. And we're going to get into talking a little bit more about that here in just a second. Since the publication, he's appeared on over 60 podcasts and he's been featured in publications like Inc., Entrepreneur, Sherm, and others. He speaks frequently as a keynote speaker, addressing attendees at the Human Capital Institute, the Ascend Conference, and many other engagements. Challenging audiences to be more intentional, find more focus, and get the right things done. So look forward to this conversation. In his private time, Trey is WSET certified sommelier and a recent private pilot with the Cirrus SR22T. I am just slightly jealous about that, Trey. (laughs) He and his wife, Shea, are the proud parents of Rhett, Emmeline, and Mary Salter. They make their home in South Georgia and travel frequently for work and pleasure. Trey, welcome to the Life's Hard Succeed Anyway podcast. Are you ready for this? I'm ready, Alan. So good to see you, man. I think I actually may be warmer than you today, as a matter of fact. I'm sure you are there in Georgia, <laughs> even though I understand it's a little cool there today as well. It's cold for us here. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, man, I've given everybody just a brief interview or brief introduction, I should say, about who Trey Taylor is. But Trey, just take us back and give us the Cliff Notes version of kind of how you got to be where you are today, managing and running so many companies with so many successful investments and just having really an overall successful life in so many ways. Yeah, I was always an entrepreneurial kid. I loved reading books and magazines. I got a Fortune magazine subscription when I was in the seventh grade for Christmas. I thought that was fabulous. My parents would always support me in that. I came from an entrepreneurial family. Taylor's never worked for other people. We always worked for companies that we owned and started and things like that. So that was very much in my, our blood coming up, my brother and I. So it was that. But then I took a different little turn and thought, you know, I want to go professional. So I went to law school and then came out of law school right at the height of the internet, the first internet bubble. And so I immediately got some huge opportunities and went to work at companies like um, WebMD, AOL, Earthlink, those kinds of companies, you know, as they were starting from sort of nothing and becoming something, I was there along the ride, sometimes doing legal work, most of the time doing sort of corporate development work. And I did that work and was really getting good at it and building a brand for myself and finding the things that I really love to have my hands in. And my dad really unexpectedly caught a mysterious illness and passed away at the age of 52. And so then I was sort of held between two worlds. One was this new corporate development sort of life that I had accepted a job at a very high level, very high salary. And it was that dream job sort of thing coming true for me. 
And then the other was, you know, do I go back and work for the family that has always sort of enabled anything that I wanted to do to make that happen? And so I sat down, I remember the weekend really well. I sat down uh, Valentine's weekend, 2005, and just had that honest conversation with myself. And the thing was, I always knew that I owed. I was always a grateful person for the privileges that I had been given by the family and in the environment that we grew up. I just thought I got to choose when I paid it back. But in reality, that wasn't the case. And so, you know, I had to say goodbye to a promising uh, career where I was in the first sort of third of that career. And I came home to run the family business and to keep things together for everyone. So that was 2005. I married my wife about a year and a half later. We started a family and, and have built a beautiful life in a place that I didn't think I would ever be happy, which is Valdosta, Georgia, a very rural sort of environment for us. Which is where you grew up. I sort of never did. We grew up in Atlanta, so my dad sort of ran the, the Atlanta interests of the family, and the rest of the family was sort of in South Georgia. And it was big culture shock. I mean, I had gone to Oxford University during college in Emory, and I had office in uh, Pasadena and New Orleans. I went to law school. I had lived all over the world at really good places. And then coming home to a very small place, the city that I live in has 42,000 people in it. And we know all of them. It's like you cannot be anonymous anymore. That was a big culture shock for me. And so you mentioned the sommelier. I mean, I had no nothing to do, no friends in town, didn't know any sort of personal contacts in town. And a new wine bar opened up. And I said, well, I like wine enough to give this a shot. So I bought a book and I would drink according to the book every day. Not necessarily the recommended way to get through a tough time, but... Um, you know, that's how I sort of created that interest and sort of sustained myself while I was going through that culture shock that first year. Interesting. And what was the business trade that the family business or your father's business? Maybe you said that and I might have missed it that you took over. Well, it was a small sort of boutique insurance agency, which we still own and we have grown and expanded into multiple other lines of business. We now represent clients in 38 states. We own our own proprietary health plan. You know, we've really grown that to be something that is very desirable for other people to try to own, which we get called about a lot of times. But that's the business that I sort of inherited and took over. And then we've grown that over time. Yeah. And then continue on. So you moved back to Valdosta. Yeah. So I moved back to town and, you know, I did that because we had about 15 to 18 families that were very dependent on that, that economic engine for their lifestyle. And so I moved home and I was the only single guy in the whole business and, you know, that sort of thing, but got married soon after that. And as I was saying, we grew that. And then around 2019, we had uh, family members that had passed on and left to our management for the benefit of other businesses. So we had a real estate business at that point. We had made strategic investments along the way as well. So it was getting to the place where it was sort of not manageable from the CEO's chair of the insurance agency. So I moved over to a new entity that we created, which was a family office. So it's a single family office, and we manage the wealth of three generations of our family for the benefit of the following three generations of the family. And so that's what takes most of my time today. I do a lot of consulting, a lot of speaking, and a lot of thinking about where does a dollar go to do a lot of work for the benefit of the family. So that's sort of the, the current stage of life that I'm in now. I love it. And let's talk about the book that you wrote. You know, you were, and I guess you still are active CEO of that company, correct? Yeah, I am. And the interesting thing is like, I never thought I would be in that chair at all. I mean, it's my dad's chair. It's my grandfather's chair, you know? 
And so I remember the day that I took over and made the announcement to the staff. I closed the door and went and Googled, how do you be a CEO? I love it. Because I had already, I had always been in the room with the CEOs. Jeff Arnold at WebMD was a great uh, friend and mentor of mine at that time. And I was always in the room with people that were really making those executive calls, but I was never called on to do that. And so when I sat down and it was finally my time and everybody was looking at me and saying, what's the next thing that we had to do? I didn't know the answer. The only thing I had this uh, sort of brainstorm and I put a legal pad next to my keyboard and I wrote down the lessons that I was learning about people and being the leader and the CEO over time. And that those lessons eventually sort of coalesced into this idea that I had that I'll write this sort of book and leave it to the guy that comes in behind me. If that's my brother, my son, my, you know, if we sell the organization, whatever it looked like. And then I started consulting with other insurance agencies. They came to us and said, gosh, we want to get the results that you have. Can you teach us how to do it? And without fail, it was always the guy or lady in charge of the business that was the biggest problem and the biggest sort of positive in the business at the same time. And that'll probably resonate with the honest members of your audience there. But I began to sort of teach the principles that are in the book. And then finally published the book during the pandemic. I was sitting during the pandemic saying, I want to be a pilot, but I feel like in order to earn the right to do that, I got to do something productive. So let me get the book down on paper. And so worked with the publisher all through the pandemic. And we published the book in November of 2020. Wow. So about a little over three years ago, I guess. About three years ago. It's done super well. Like I'm abashed at how well the book we've north of 60,000 copies wow congratulations uh, the publisher called and said thank you man I'm, i mean i thought it would sell 500 copies yeah almost don't even tell that <laughs> <laughs> exactly and the publisher said hey you've really got something here i want you to do the audio book and you know it just keeps going we have a video course that uh that has been ordered and is being produced uh, right now about the principles in the book there's a workbook that has come out so it's got this own little little following i got a linkedin three days ago from the director and presidential advisor for entrepreneurialism in the country of Namibia. Wow. And I had to look it up. Like I had to go find it. And she had read the book and said, you know, this is great. And do you ever come to Africa and that sort of thing? So the book has been a lot of uh, fun and it's opened a lot of doors in really authentic conversations with people. Well, congratulations, 60,000. For our listeners that don't understand what that really means, and maybe you can help me clarify, Trey, if I get this wrong, if you know better. But what I've been told is, I think it's like 5% of all books will ever sell 5,000 copies. It's something like that, isn't it? Yeah, it is. We were told when we were going through the process that, uh, you know, that most books sell less than 500 copies. Yeah. Most first books right. sell less than 500 copies. Unless it's just an absolute hit like, um, you know, Ryan Holiday's books or Tucker Max or somebody like that. But you stay with it and you do the right things to get the book in front of people. You do a lot of podcast talks and things like that. And if the message resonates, people say, hmm, maybe I'd like to dig in a little bit on the book. So I'm just really, I mean, you, you get to a place where the book is a separate entity. It's almost like I had nothing <laughs> to do with it. You know, it's just on its own life and uh, and it keeps going and it's fun every month i get a a check from uh from amazon and a check from you know these other booksellers and things like that i'm like wow this is easy money now <laughs> yeah 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 well that's awesome so how many years was it you said you published it in 2020 
what year was it when you took over as CEO? Like, I'm just trying to think how many years of CEO experience was it before the book was published? 2005 is when I took over. And I had been thinking, I had been asking myself, because I knew one day I would be a CEO. I had been asking myself through my whole career, as I'm watching Jeff or, or Fred Wilson or any of the guys that I really admired, I would sort of ask myself, like, what are they doing that, that is different from what other people do? And it, it came to me that there are, you know, basically any working position is going to do three things really excellently. It's not like their to-do list is three things long, right? right? It's just these categories that they can do and sort of only they can do. Let's hear it. And so I have that interest. Oh, well, for, for a CEO, it's pretty easy. A CEO only does three things, and those three things are culture, people, and numbers. Now, does that mean that nobody in the organization touches culture, people, numbers? Absolutely not. But it's only the CEO who has in his job description the responsibility and the accountability and the authority, I should say, to set the agenda inside those items. So the CEO's job is to say, this is the culture that we are going to build and live within. And if you are going to be here with us, this is where you're going to live. These are the kinds of people that are going to inhabit that culture. And we want these people and not these people. And we know that this is working if the numbers that I set out are doing this and not this, right? Right. A COO might only do three things and they're completely different things. They may overlap, they may touch, but he's not the one setting the agenda for those three things. That's how we think and talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. So the three things, they said the people and numbers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Culture, people, numbers. The culture, I think hopefully most people can wrap their head around. Can you elaborate just a little bit more on the, what you mean by people? Yeah. So the people are the ones that make up the culture, of course. Right. And the culture is really, you know, your values being expressed inside of behaviors. That's the best definition of culture that I can give anybody. So those behaviors show up where inside of people. And so the CEO's job really has to be to be the gardener of the culture. And one of the things that you want to do is to find the beautiful plants and nurture them so that they're good. But you also have to rip out the weeds, the things that are trying to destroy that garden. And so I like that metaphor of the sort of CEO as gardener. It is recruiting. It is retention. It is development of people that is a core responsibility of, of CEOs and the great ones know this without having to be trained on it, you know? Right. Right. You can see really great CEOs doing that. And, and so intertwined with culture. I mean, I don't have to tell you this. Yes. But I mean, those two are so just joined at the hip, aren't they? You, you can't break them apart without damaging both. And, and my further argument is numbers are as well, because numbers are the scorecard of how well are the people acting in the culture. Right. Right. So it's sort of the lagging indicator of the culture and the people mix is working. And so we're producing something that we can point to and say, we, we can track that and manage that. I love it. I've got so many other questions I want to ask you, Trey, but just before we get off of the book, what would you say to someone who says, well, is there value and application for me from the book, lessons from the book, principles in the book? I'm not a CEO. What, what would you say to them? For sure. Yeah, so I've had two interesting experiences along those lines. One, I had a, uh, a client who bought his company a copy of the book and they all read it in their bookshelf time that they had together. 
And he did that because he wanted his people to know what he wanted to be held accountable against. And it made him a better CEO and it made them better understand that his job was to handle those three things and not the 65 things that they would bring to him on a weekly or daily basis to handle when it really wasn't his job to do so. So that was an interesting sort of learning from that standpoint. And then secondly, you know, leaders at any level are going to own some level of cultural impact, some level of people recruitment or retention or relation and some level of performance inside of numbers. So I get that question sometimes like, well, I'm a, you know, a manager of a, of a sub brand of a major brand. Is this book of any help to me? Potentially so. First off, if you ever want to be a, a CEO, maybe that would be helpful for you to understand that. Second off, if you want to understand what the CEO is trying to do and become, it's a good sort of roadmap there. But lastly, you know, you are still going to pick up some tips and tools inside of your existing position of how can I impact my culture positively? How can I help people grow? And how can I prove that those two things are working in concert to produce the results that we want to have? I love it. Good stuff, Trey. What would you say, obviously, you've had a ton of success, continue to have a ton of success. What would you say has been one of the keys to your success for our listeners that are going, hey, I want to level up. I want to learn from Trey. I'm sure there's a lot you could teach them, but what is one of the things you think that's been responsible for your success? No, I think it's a great question. And, uh, you know, if I can talk about myself without sounding uh, too plumped up there, you know, I have an ability to focus. That ability grows more valuable the way the world changes and the way that we've seen the world change in the past 15 or 20 years. Alan, when you and I were kids, we had um, Oreo flavored Oreos. That was it, right? We had one flavor of Oreo. There are now over 700 marketed flavors of Oreo. Every one of them I've had has been delicious, by the way. But, you know, coming up today, if you're a young person today, the ability to spread your attention across so many choices absolutely has to mean that the quality of your decision is under attack. And so the ability to focus, not necessarily on the cookie flavor that's the best for you at that given time, but that is extrapolated across all facets of life right now. We are drowning in over choice. And the ability to choose what to focus on and then commit to the focus has always been just a superpower for me and something that I strive to maintain. And, um, and it's that ability to say no to things. You know, that's the muscle that I work on. So if I put that on one side of things, that makes me more aware and more sort of oriented towards success. If I do not balance that with the care of the people in my life, I find that I tend to become somebody that I don't like, and therefore the success, the definite, my personal definition of success doesn't hold there. So you can be as focused as you want to be all day long every day, but if what you are doing and focusing on doesn't bring an increase of care of people that have been entrusted to your life, I would argue with you that it's not really a key to success. Right. That's so good, Trey. I want to, I, I got to just take, peel the onion one, one more layer or level deep here, if we could on that and just get your insight on, on something you just said. First of all, I, I love what you said that a key to your success has been your ability to focus and you talking about this information or not information age. We've passed the information age. I mean, we are in the attention age, right? As I had a guest a couple, a few weeks ago, who's an active He's an entrepreneur, business owner, and also active F-16 fighter pilot. Come on here and talk about oh. just that whole attention age that we're in. It was a great interview, but 
you nailed it. It's like the ability to focus, especially in the day and age we're in with so many distractions. I did not know there was how many flavors of Oreo now? Did you say 70? Over 600. 600. Almost 700 flavors. I spoke to a high school group a year ago and I went to the grocery store before I got there because I thought to myself, like, what am I going to tell these kids to how are they going to be? Go inherit an insurance agency. That's, you know, I mean, that's the way to get successful, right? So I went to the grocery store and I bought one sleeve of every single Oreo I could find. And they had 30, 35 sleeves. And I took it to that meeting in that, in that talk that I was giving and I passed them around. And I said, reach in and get the best Oreo for you. And we had a dreamsicle flavored Oreo. This is crazy. We had a cookies and cream flavored Oreo, which was basically Oreos crushed up inside of Oreos. We had a, a cappuccino flavored one. We had a matcha tea flavored one. I mean, just all kinds of crazy, crazy flavors, a Kit Kat flavored one, all that sort of stuff. And I made the point from doing that. That was 30 flavors or more just in my little hometown, you know, but worldwide they market over 700 flavors of Oreo. It's amazing. And then you can go take that and go look at all the social media platform choices and look at all the, I mean, it's endless. So to that point, I just love that you brought out the ability to focus is an incredible asset to any entrepreneur or really anyone for that matter. In fact, my word for this year is no, I'm trying to limit options. I mean, I have so many options. I'll do to your point. And I'm trying to say no to the right ones, say no to the wrong ones, maybe so I can say yes to the right ones. But my question for you is this. I think what you're saying is we can become hyper-focused. Let's say you didn't say this, but I kind of took it this way. Say on our income producing activity, on our occupation, on our career, whatever that thing is, and we lose focus on our marriage or our children or our health or all the other things we can lose focus on. Or our coworkers. I mean, even if we're working on the same project and I don't raise my eyes from the keyboard often enough, to check in with you. Maybe your marriage is falling apart on the other side of things and you're trying to sort of hide that, but you're really struggling with it. You know, those kinds of things. You have to keep those two things in balance. I think extreme focus on focus is a negative. Extreme focus on the care of people may also be a negative in some situations if you aren't achieving anything in other places of your life. It's that balance that is so necessary, I think. Yeah, I 100% agree. And maybe this is just too difficult a question to even fairly ask of any human being, but do you have any tips for how to achieve that balance or to stay in that balance? I'll tell you how I do it with people. And this is, I think you'll understand what I'm saying here. This is biblical, not scriptural. Okay. Got so it. there's a bit of a dis distinction there, but I don't think that I would get a lot of pushback at the pearly gates. But at some point, my life is going to end. And in my faith journey, I do believe there's a conversation that happens at the end of that. And I think the conversation basically goes like, what did you do with the people by name that we sent you? Yeah. What did you do with them? Did you advance them and invest in them and pour the love that we gave you into those people? That keeps me balanced on that side of things. And then the goal setting that I do, I'm a massive goal setter and we're in a three-week process of goal setting for my organizations right now. That is what keeps me balanced there. So am I putting my time into things that matter? And am I taking care of the people that have been put in my life? Those are the two things that keep me in balance. Does that help everybody? I don't know, but that's what helps keep Trey in balance on that. Hey, I love it. I think it's some great advice. 
and a great perspective. You mentioned earlier losing your dad when he was 52, I think you said. So yeah. you must have been not a very, you know, you were still a young man when that happened. I was 31 at that point. Yeah. Okay. Is that the toughest thing you would say that you've been through at this point in your life? I know we all go through challenges and I love talking about challenges just because I think so easy when we're in the middle of one or someone's in the middle of one, it feels like, hey, we're the only one and this is some limiting factor in my success in this area of life or this area of life. And it's just fun. At least I find it enjoyable to see other people having success despite their challenges. So I'm just always curious to find out like what is one or more of the bigger challenges that you've personally been through? Yeah. And I'll tell you two of them and they're super related. 2005 was a huge challenge. My dad was 52, died of what we now know is COVID. We didn't know that at the time. His death certificate says complications from the SARS-2 virus, which we couldn't, where did he get it? And, you know, all of that sort of thing. So it was completely a thing that nobody knew about, what, 19 years ago. Not only that, my dad was not a great delegator. And so when he wasn't in that office the following Monday to do the work to function the business so that everybody else could just sort of go along and then his kid had to show up who didn't know anything about the business and sort of try to figure things out. And it was not a surprise that people might have been looking for the exit at that point to say, hey, this thing's not going to make it without Trey's dad being here. You know, maybe we should go knock on other doors and things like that. So the challenge was keeping the business together, keeping the family together. This was, you know, the love of my mom's life. It was my younger brother's best friend on earth. And, you know, they needed and deserved time to grieve without worrying that bankruptcy loomed, you know, around the corner or something of that nature. And I had been groomed in such a way that I could step in and sort of shut down those emotions and just go to work. And I did. And so we kept every single employee and independent contractor that we wanted to keep inside the business. We kept all of the contracts with all of our suppliers in in force. And then we're able to hit the goals that my dad had set for the year. We were still able to achieve those and then have grown with a very nice CAGR, uh, 15.8% CAGR every year since then. Wow. So good things came from it, but it was the most difficult. You know, emotionally, it was difficult. I remember physically, it felt like my muscles were just going to pop out of my skin. You know, it was just, I was so tight. I'd go to get a massage and the lady would stop halfway through and say, there's nothing. I, I can only going to hurt you. I'm only going to bruise you because you are so tight. And was that just stress related? Just stress. Yeah. Just stress. Yeah. I was carrying stuff without actually lifting anything. So that was really hard. It, it began to abate after a year and it was largely self-imposed. I was not going to let my dad down that year, no matter, no matter who I had to run over or what I had to do, you know, economically, we did and kept it together. So it was a, it was a great challenge that year. And then Alan, I, I don't know that it's uh, the same thing here, but I'm in a season of loss right now. I lost my mother three weeks ago. I lost my brother over a year ago, just over a year ago. And my grandfather, who was the start of the whole family just at a year ago as well. So it is a real season of loss for me right now. So I only share that to not to say, poor me, woe is me, but to say you can be in the midst of challenge and people not even know it. Yeah. And, and you still put one foot ahead of the other foot and you just get through it and you make it because life is hard. There's no promise that life is never going to be hard. 
Right. And, uh, and that's what, you know, that's what we're tasked as entrepreneurs and as, as people who lead others to get things done, no matter how hard it might be. 100%. And that really was the heartbeat behind this podcast when we started, I guess, close to a year and a half ago now. And it was many years coming, but I had lost my parents' marriage. And then I'd lost my mother, not physically, not she's still alive, but to a 10-year deep depression. So I, I lost the mother I knew. And then I lost my brother to suicide. And then I lost my sister to suicide a couple of years later. So I went through a season, among other things, that was a lot of tragedy, a lot of loss, a lot of hurt, heartache. And yet at the same time, we were building, Nicole, my wife and I were building our current business. It's now nine years old, but we're building our current business and we were doing these things and seeing a lot of success in our marriage and our health and our finances. And people were, you know, that had these limiting beliefs were wondering, like, not wondering, people I would be coaching, having conversations with, I, I would hear their limiting beliefs. And I'm like, hey, let me, let me just share with you a little bit about what we've gone through or maybe what we're going through or a daughter with cancer. I mean, the list is pretty long for our family, you know, and as they heard these things, Trey, they were, I could see like, figuratively speaking, scales fall off their eyes and hope really that, wow, you mean you can go through this, that, and the other and still have success in these other areas of life, financially, physically, relationally, whatever. Right. Yeah, you can. You absolutely can. Does it change things? Yes. Is it hard? Absolutely. That's the why the podcast is called Life's Hard, but we can succeed anyway. And I think you're just a great example of that. And that's, again, why I like asking these questions, because I do believe this is encourages other people to hear what Trey's going through. And even just three weeks ago, I'm so sorry about the loss of your mother. And you've been hit hard, really. Two years, I guess it's been. It's been a difficult year, but inside of the season of loss, there are lots of really good things to remember and to hold on to. And a lot of motivational type activities for me to say, wait a minute, am I living the life that I should be living? Because, you know, you jump in the river and the river's going to take you somewhere and you look and you say, gosh, is this really where I wanted it to end up? Right. And so in the past week, my kids and I have had really heart to heart discussions. I have two teenagers and a baby. And the teenagers, you know, we're having conversations around the most important possible things to talk about. I love it. And I don't know that if I hadn't been woken by loss, that I would be courageous enough to have those conversations because I think they require courage. They require heart power to sit down and talk with kids about before you can't anymore. So, you know, you, you try to find the positive in the, in the negative. Now, could I trade that for my mom back? I'd make that trade in a heartbeat, but uh, yeah, but you, you don't get that choice. You, you keep going forward. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. And I relate with that too. I mean, during that dark season in our life, that's what caused me to reevaluate everything I was doing, my career, everything. And actually for me, change careers. And I've wrote it about it all about in my first book as well, which is the same title, Life's Hard Succeeding Way. And I'll mail you a copy of it, Trey. So, so you'll get a copy of it. Yeah. There's a lot of similarities I think you're going to find. Anyway, I was CEO of, a, of another company before and I just walked away from it to do something completely wow. different. So just in that process of evaluating what was really more important to me and my family at that season of life, right? It's important. How do you view your past challenges now, Trey? Like looking back on these things, like you said, you would give anything to have your mother back, of course. And that's a fresh one three weeks ago. But, you know, the even going all the way back to losing your father when you were 31 years old and 
having to take over a company you knew nothing not or very little about at the time because you were pursuing yeah. a whole nother career. Like all of the challenges and the ones that are to come. Like how do you view them in hindsight? So a lot of times I look at look at it as emotional tuition. Like if you're going to learn something, you're going to pay somebody to teach you that thing, right? So life taught me a lot of things in those examples of loss. There's been examples of greatness in those things, you know, in those years as well. But it's emotional tuition. It's how much of myself am I willing to pay to to level myself up, to get to the next place, to get to that next version of myself that I want to get to. In my faith journey, I believe in a sanctification process, like I'm trying to reduce things so that I come out the other. Well, the same thing in my intellectual journey, you know, I want to, I want to learn more. You and I talked about it earlier in my abundance journey. I want to say no to more because it actually creates more abundance and more joy in the things that I stick with. So that's the way that I look at things is that it's all a journey and that I have to realize that nobody completes a journey in one step. You have to go through. And I think you kind of have to learn the same lesson over and over again until you've really learned it and it's become a part of your identity. So I think about that a whole lot. And the aha moment for me, uh, which always comes for me <laughs> way later than it seems to come to other people, but I read Ryan Holiday's The Obstacle is the Way. And I thought, yeah, this is what I've been sort of thinking or suspecting for 20 years that I'm supposed to enjoy the hard parts of the journey. I'm not supposed to detest them. I'm not supposed to feel above them. I'm not supposed to feel put upon that my time on earth is hard. It's hard for everybody and a lot easier for me than 99.1% of humanity. Right. So the hard things that I get should be delighted in. And that really, I could almost feel the DNA shift at that point that, you know, now I look for the really meaningful challenge and, and enjoy doing that where in the past, I just wanted the easy road. I still wanted the success. I still wanted the end of the journey, but I just wanted it to be easy. And I was just put off that it wasn't as easy. So that was a big aha for me. I love that. So good. Such great encouragement for, for all of us. What advice would you give to somebody else who may be right in the midst of their struggle right now? Is there any just nugget of advice you might give to them? I don't know that I'm a great advisor in that way, but I'll tell you where I look for myself. And I always find if anything feels off or I feel unhappy in any reason, if I drop back and remind myself of what my purpose is, and that's a journey in itself for you to figure out what your purpose is on life. Why were you dropped in these shoes during this time? What is the purpose? What is your contribution to make? Every single time that I'm unhappy or at unease or any of that is I am living off purpose and I have to shift back on purpose, which every single time means doing something different than I am doing. And usually means leaving somebody that I am with at that point. I may have surrounded myself with the wrong people, or I may be doing the wrong activity that has sort of brought the wrong people around me. So there's always a cost to pay in human terms of me getting back on purpose. And, uh, but in doing so, the stress level comes down, the work scene, I'm doing more by doing less, you know, that sort of thing. So I always try to be an on purpose person. 
But I can't do that unless I know what my purpose is. And that's something that we have to know about ourselves. Such great advice. If you could go back in time and give your younger self just one piece of advice, if you were limited to one, what would one of those pieces of advice be? That guy thought fighting every battle was the point. That's not the point, right? Let's choose the battles where we can make the most progress that get us to a place of on purpose instead of fighting every single opportunity that comes up. Yeah, that's a great one. I, I talked to that guy quite a bit, actually. Yeah, I love it. I love it, Trey. <laughs> Just some 30-second uh, type quick rapid fire questions for you as we start to wrap this yeah. up. Do you have a favorite success quote or maybe one of your a success quote that you'd be willing to share with our audience? I do. Do you know Andy Duke? Have you ever had her on the show? I have not. Do I need to? I don't know who she is. She's a woman professional poker player. And her brother is a professional poker player, and they win the World Series of Poker on frequent basis. Andy Duke. Shows you how much of a poker player or fan I am. I, I'm the same way, but I've seen her on television, and, and she wrote a book, and the book was fabulous. And I have this habit that anytime I read a quote ever, and I've done this since I was 16 years of age, I write it down in an index card, an old school index card. This is since December. I have thousands of these cards. This is the one that I'm, it's interesting that this comes up today because I just wrote this one down about four days ago. Success comes from sticking to the stuff that's working and quitting the rest. That is why quitting is a skill that you need to get good at, which is what we were talking about. It's that saying no more often. Counterintuitively, if I say no more, am I reducing my abundance? No, I'm increasing my abundance because that means that my focus that we talked about already can go to the things that are going to produce the best possible results for me. So that, I don't know that that's one that I would say every day of the week, but I thought that was a great fit for what we were talking about yeah, today. It really is. Is there a particular habit trade that you feel like looking back on your life has been key or instrumental in your success? I adopted a habit because of a comment that a uh, mentor made to me 25 years ago. And that was, you should carry around with you a map of every relationship that you are in, and you should have intentions for every one of those. And so I do, I have a notebook that I keep and every single person that I work with, every single person in my family, I have my written intentions for that relationship. I review that at the beginning of every year and I set specific goals around that. So for example, I have a first cousin who, you know, we were very, very close growing up together life happens. We go all over the place. He was in the army and deployed in, in really interesting places. And, you know, we would keep up maybe on Facebook or by text twice a year. We now live within 45 minutes of each other and haven't seen each other except at funerals in the past 12 months. I know that's not right. I love this guy. Your first cousin is your, usually your first friend, right? Yeah. I love this guy. I love him just as much now at, at 50 as I did at uh, four. And uh, I don't spend time with him and I don't know what he's interested in anymore. So I have a relationship map there where my published intention is to go spend more time with him and learn to appreciate where he is in life. And I'll do that because I'm numbers oriented. I'm going to make four separate visits with him, which may not sound like a lot, but it's four visits more than I'm doing right now. Right. I have that kind of intention published on everybody that I can fit in that notebook. I love it. Intentionality with relationships. 
yeah, that is the sort of best habit that I've ever gotten into. And I keep it right next to the keyboard, a little moleskin notebook. I keep it right next to the keyboard. If I'm waiting on a host to get me in a podcast room, I might flip through it. I might drop a text. I might send an email. I love gift giving. I might send a special little gift or something of that nature. So it's just a meditation on, you know, the quality of my life is the quality of my relationships. How can I intentionally improve the quality of my relationships and therefore my life? So good, Trey. So good. What is one of the best pieces of advice that somebody has given you? My dad was famous for saying hard choices, easy life, easy choices, hard life. I'm having that conversation with my kids right now. My son and I are going to Spain this year to walk the Pilgrim's Trail to Santiago. It's a hundred kilometers. He does not want to do that. He's 14. He wants to sit in front of his game machine and play games, or he wants to chat online with girls or whatever he wants to do at 14. At nowhere in his life has he said, I want to walk a hundred miles in a country where I don't speak the language, where food is going to be different, sleep in, you know, grade one hotels and end up at a place that I don't really care about in the first place. He's going to do something hard in his 14th year so that he teaches himself that things that he thinks is hard are not really hard. It's just a matter of deciding to do it and getting it done. So yeah, hard choices, easy life, easy choices, hard life. I heard it 12 million times. I love it. That was my dad's favorite thing to say. And secondly, where is it written that life is fair? Oh, yeah. He used to drive me nuts with that one. Yeah, I'd say that all the time. Oh, sounds like you had a wise dad. He was a good man. I love that. What is one book? I know we've talked about your book and it sounds amazing. <laughs> I can't wait to read it. But in addition to yours, a CEO only does three things. What's one book you might recommend for the Life's Hard Succeed Anyway audience? I don't know if uh, everybody will love this book the way that I have. I have read it every year since I was introduced to it. And I read a hundred books a year. I set a goal every single year for the last 21 years to read a hundred books a year. New Year's Eve finds me reading furiously if I'm behind on that. I read this book every year. It's The Alchemist by Paul Coelho. It is a sort of a fictionalized, fantastical, almost a novel, but it is the absolute best sort of spiritual journey book that I have been exposed to. I have read it to my kids at young ages because I want them to know that your purpose is expressed in you and you find that purpose and you go do the hard things that make that purpose come true in the real world. And so that's what I take from The Alchemist. And I, I love, I read it on Audible. I read it uh, in page form as well. I can't wait. I have a baby now, but I can't wait for the baby's old enough that I can read it to her as well. That's a special time. So yeah, The Alchemist. I gift The Alchemist. I think uh, the last time I looked at uh, Amazon, I had given away a hundred copies or so of The Alchemist. I think it's a great book. Love it. Great recommendation. What is your Trey Taylor's definition of success? You mentioned it earlier in our conversation. You didn't define it for our listeners, but you were talking about things must align with your definition of success, which I could appreciate. So what is that definition? People are really fond of, of thinking uh, maybe success is about money or material things or that kind of stuff. I know your audience has progressed past that, but we all do sort of start there. Success for me only exists where I am the one deciding who I am. That's what success is to me. Maybe I want to be furiously busy at a project. Maybe I don't want to be that at all and want to be a father and, and pouring into that. It doesn't matter, but success only exists if I'm the one determining who I am at the end of it. It has to be identity-based. 
Good stuff, Trey. What when you think about the future, these last two questions I have for you, what is it right now currently that excites you about the future? Yeah, I'm super excited about technology-wise AI finding its home in our work lives. I am not worried that AI can do the jobs of people. That's always been the impact of technology. I am super excited about people being able to express their higher creativity by not having to do lower function tasks that we can train and and trust AI to do. I think we'll see that expressed everywhere, including in the biomedical field, where where I think we're going to see some really amazing advances. If, because I'm in a season of loss, if you've sat there with somebody's hand wishing that this gene could be edited or this biological function could be corrected when it's too late. I'm quite optimistic that maybe we can do more with that kind of technology. So I'm super excited about that. We do a ton of tech investing. You and I have spoken about that. The other thing that I'm investing a lot in is called future of travel. And so we're seeing a lot of technology innovation around electrical engines, power cells. We have an investment in this, a sea glider that um, is like halfway between an airplane and a hydrofoil. And, uh, and it's, you know, going crazy. That company's growing like, like nuts. But um, those things are just exciting to me to, to see how they come in the world. Yeah. Well, I'm with you on the whole AI thing. I'm super optimistic and excited about already what we've got our hands on and the general public, meaning all of us. And how yeah. you know all play out in hyperspeed really over the next couple of years. Next five years are gonna be pretty fascinating. So I love that you even brought that out. Yeah, I'm already behind in my chat GPT skill set. I was early adopter. I signed up as soon as I could get in. I use it, I use it every day. I think it's probably taking two hours of work a day off of, on average on my plate and and doing it elsewhere. My attorney bills have dropped because GPT can draft things for me that are of high quality, enough quality that I can use. So that's a positive thing. But you take a week off and you come back to it and like you need to work more to get your skill set up, you know, to get your chops up so that you can use that and other tools to make yourself uh, more productive. So I'm optimistic. Love it. What is the best way, Trey, this has been awesome for our listeners to connect with you and follow along on your journey if they choose? Yeah, the website, trey-taylor.com, my consulting website, uh, trinity-blue. A lot of people get my newsletter, which is a Substack. It's free. It always will be free. You can find it at plantyourflag.live. I write when I have something to say that I think is interesting. So it's not like it comes out every Thursday and it's the same thing over and over. It's, hey, did you know that China is the number one producer of cars today? You know, let's talk about that. And because it's intriguing to me, and it's like I'm writing this newsletter sort of to process info for myself. I learned today that 60% of Canadians live south of Seattle. That is something that would totally go in the newsletter. And then there are some long form pieces like what's the point of education? I had, I did a four part series on what the point of education is. I just did my number one engagement newsletter of all time was how to read. How do you read 100 books a year? You don't sit down and read from page one to page 200. There's a process. So I put that in there. So a lot of people get that. Plantyourflag.live. I've got about 11,000 people that get that, which is good. And then, uh, you know, I'm on Facebook. I'm on all the social platforms. Trey Taylor, JD, sometimes if they all have Trey Taylor. Yeah. Got it. Got it. All right. So we'll drop all that in the show notes here below. 
this episode so it's easy for all our listeners to find. And Trey, I'm going to give you the last word, brother. Any closing comment you might want to share with our Life's Hard Succeed Anyway audience on the way out? The life script is the one that we write. And I think that we lose that understanding a lot of times. We are so reactive to circumstances. But if we're not the one in the middle of those circumstances saying, this is the way that I'm going to approach these challenges to produce the man I want to be at the end of 10 or 15 years to align with the purpose that I'm here on earth. And in my personal faith journey, I've been created for that purpose. And I will answer for that at some point. Not everybody has to believe that, but Trey does. You know, that's the point of everything that we've just talked about is that script of life is what we write every single day. I love it, Trey. What a great word to go out on, man. I appreciate your time. This has been fun and valuable. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Alan. Really enjoyed the conversation. Been great, man. That was awesome. Thank you. If you love this podcast, grab some of Alan's free resources on his website at alanblain.com, spelled A-L-L-A-N-B-L-A-I-N.com. You can also find links to Alan's Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok there in his contact page. Lastly, if you can leave a five-star review for us on your favorite podcast app, that will get these messages out to more people and it will really mean the world to us. Thanks in advance and make it a great day.